When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Martin. Today, I'm talking with Tanvi Birva on the New Book Network in Fantasy about her debut YA fantasy novel, Monsters Born and Made. In our narrator Coral's world, an oceanic world full of sea monsters, brutal heat, and only a few livable islands, choices are limited. Coral belongs to a class of people called renters, who don't own land or, in many cases, even have proper dwellings. The landers, on the other hand, live protected inside a cool place called the Terra Fort, safe from the dangers that the renters experience every day. Coral's angry father, quiet mother, and sick little sister depend on her and her brother Emrick to earn enough to keep the simple dwelling they live in, and to buy her sister's medicine. Coral's family are, by tradition, hunters, a special class of hunters which have a few more privileges than most others. Hunters catch and train wild sea monsters called maristocks, which are used in a glory race held every four years. This year, however, it looks like Emmerich and Coral's luck has run out. They have one Maristag, a female, left, but fail to catch a male to breed her with. In desperation, Coral finds a way to participate in a glory race, although she will be the first renter to do so. Not only must she race with a barely tamed Maristag and a decrepit chariot, she must also bear the hostility of both the landers and the other renters for not knowing her place. The three days of the race are non-stop action, with unexpected attacks by swarms of aquabats, rebel renters, and other charioteers looking to scare Coral off, as well as tense encounters with Dorian, a former lander friend of Coral's who is competing against her. It seems like almost no one believes that Coral can win this race, except her sick little sister. I'll do a short reading now before welcoming Tanvi on the show. This is Chapter 1, uh, Coral's Voice. We hunt when the world sleeps. A risk that could kill us. A risk forced on us. I try to awaken my brother, but he only murmurs sleepily. Oh, piss off. It's four already. Baba told us to be at the beach by now. Emmerich clutches his mattress like a crab, stubbornly clinging to a rock. When I yank off his blanket, he snarls, Get out of my room! His shoe thuds against the door just as I shut it. I press my back against a stone wall, the chill grounding me. Minutes later, Emmerich appears. We're dressed alike, black pants, a fitted white shirt with collars up to our chins, and boots molded to our feet. Beneath, we're both wearing Skya-threaded water suits, the hunter siblings. 
His fist tightens on the doorknob. Being nervous before a hunt is good. It means we're alert, not stupid. Coral, he says, voice hoarse. Is anyone else up? His hair is far past his shoulders, almost as long as mine. The single clip stuck through it shines in an anemic yellow glow of the light above the door. Before I say anything, Lyria's asthmatic coughs echo in the silence. The thought of our little sister choking on air isn't helpful as we climb the claustrophobic corkscrew staircase, leaving the safety of our underground house. But it's a good reminder of why the hunt needs to go perfectly, why we cannot let a Maristag escape us tonight, because that's how we survive. Hi, Tanvi, and welcome to the show. Hi, Gabrielle. It's, it's so nice to be here. It's a nice job to you. Yeah. Very excited to be here. Thanks for arranging time in your schedule. So let's just start off with the questions. Uh, we're going to focus on Carl mostly, but also her yeah. family and the society she lives in. So let's start off with Carl's last name. Uh, how did she get her last name and what does the practice of the last name say about the place of renters in the society overall? Yeah, so um, thanks for asking that because, you know, this is this is definitely one of the core things about mm -hmm. this story because it, it, it goes back to um, the real-world caste system that is the inspiration for what exists in the book. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the real-world caste system that's practiced in South Asia even now, it's like this very weird, very illogical system of society where, you know, you divide people by caste that they are born into. And, you know, uh, these there are like the upper caste people and then there are the lower caste people and then there are some who are like outside of this whole thing. And, and they're treated really, um, how do I say this? Like, it's really evil when you think about it. These people are treated as untouchable. These people are still, you know, in the modern world, they're treated like completely ostracized and everything. And their last names are used to, you know, distinguish them from the upper caste people. And I think, and and part of it that inspired that 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 inspired the system in the book, I related it to the job. And basically, the lower caste people in the book, their last names are not unique like the upper caste names. The upper caste names. They get to have unique family own names, but the lower ones are divided by the job they do or the island they belong to. So that's where the name comes from, and that's what it's a signifier. It's it's a symbol. It's an indicator of a job or someone's location in society. So hunter is less of a name and more of a symbol, and it's it's expanded a bit on the book as well. And that's also why Coral Hunter refers to herself as Coral of Salonia in the when she enters the glory race. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah, so the upper caste system gets to exist just by the virtue of their existence, but everyone else is defined solely by the job that they do. And yeah. that is really all that they get to do. They don't get to switch yeah. jobs or move to one strata to the other as it was in the uh, 
old Indian caste system, which unfortunately yeah. still has its place in parts of India. Yeah, it's a very it's a very strict categorization. Like, there's no movement in there. Mm-hmm. If you are a hunter, that's what you're supposed to do. So, yeah. uh, Maristags have a lot to do with the hunters. <laughs> yeah. And uh, can you explain to the audience what they are and why people are afraid of them? Uh, yeah. So, uh, Maristags are these absolutely hot-headed, defensive, amphibious creatures that look like a cross between um, a velociraptor that you see in the Jurassic franchise and a stag. And I mean, in my head, the deer part is from a markhor, which is found in the northern regions of Pakistan and India. And I mean, these are all invented creatures. I had a fun making them up. But um, in the story, the true origin is a mystery. So we know that they arrive every 10 months along with the annual upwelling of waters around Salonia, that they're violent, but they're also super smart. And the offspring who are like landborn can be raised to obey commands. And basically what makes them feared apart from their violent nature is um, their impulsiveness. Like the, the living conditions in this world also make it difficult to really conduct studies on these creatures mm-hmm. to better understand them like, you know, like we would. And so they're seen as something to be conquered, something to be raised with. But other than that, they're not meant to be engaged with. Like, like, um, this also ties with the caste system in a way that, you know, the upper caste people see themselves as the, like, highest point of life. And anything that, you know, um, shakes that status that, in a way, you know, that these creatures are violent, these creatures are stronger than them, they don't want to engage with that. They just want to conquer them. Right. And so the glory race, which is basically the biggest... Uh, party <laughs> every year <laughs> or every four years, I think, uh, yeah. in that world. It, it's a celebration for people and it revolves around the Maristag. And uh, yeah. there was a champion in the first glory race mm-hmm. who tamed one and he was honored for his skill and courage. But there's also more information about that champion that most uh-huh. people don't know about, that just the hunters know about. So uh, tell us about that. Oh, definitely. Um, uh, even, like, Coram notes in the book how this version of the story of the champion being honored is somewhat distorted and it doesn't expand on why the champion needed to tame the Maristag in the first place, like the wars and stuff and rebellion. That stuff is all sanitized away from the story that gets retold. Uh, at the same time, this event took place so long ago that it's practically a myth, and any recollection now is filtered from perspectives and opinions, even within the hunter line. So it's mythologized and used as needed. Like um, for Coral, she sees herself in the champion. She relates to this person's desperation at attempting the impossible, trying to survive. But um, does she really know this person? Like probably not, because there are the stuff of legends now. Mm-hmm. So all of that is really entwined into how stories get retold and stories get used in society as well. Right. Usually the people who run society retell history in yeah. their own favor and other stories are suppressed. So the landers treat all of the renters as marginalized people. I mean, uh-huh. the hunters have a few more benefits, but they're still just hunters. They don't get to be a seamstress or a professor if they want to instead. 
uh, Coral is a renter. So yeah. why don't the other renters support her, even before she decides to enter the race in a uh -huh. desperate attempt to help her sister? Why is she ostracized a little by the other renters? Yeah, so um, this goes back to the caste system and the hierarchy that, you know, the upper caste people divide lower caste people into further stratas. So, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's like there are certain people that simply do not have any rights. So even among the lower stratas, when there are hierarchies, the people on the upper uh, end of that hierarchy, they, they want to feel like they have more rights. They are more, more human in a way. Like historically, the real world oppressed caste has been treated like so bad that they're not allowed to live within the same villages. They're not even allowed to walk near upper caste people. And it's absolute social evil. So within the context of the story, the hunters are a subcaste within the renters. Mm -hmm. And people actively wish malice on them, which I wouldn't say that it's an, it's a, it's something that, you know, people are born with. It's more like the social, the, the social setup conditions them to believe that if these people are worse than us, that, you know, maybe we are better. Like, is there a reason? No, there's not. It's illogical, like the real world counterpart. So yeah, it's more, it's more of a social, Thing that you know we want to be better than them but coral doesn't look down on the other renters it's more that the other renters resent her yeah. because they feel even though she has a little bit of privilege and she's nowhere near being she as does. privileged yeah. but they're still jealous and they resent her yeah. for having a little bit more than they do yeah that jealousy also definitely plays a part into it so, they also want her to, you know, acknowledge that um, that privilege that she has. But, mm -hmm. yeah, it goes both ways, definitely. So, uh, Coral does have some friends, though, and she actually had a friend who was a lander, Dorian, yeah. a rich, entitled, Lizumi's handsome, uh, a young man who Coral was attracted to, and they were good friends. Yeah. But he took a Maristag from her without even paying her. Yet, mm -hmm. even after all that, when Dorian and Coral meet again, they try to hate each other, but they have something in common that draws us, that draws them together. And what is that? Yeah, um, so I see Dorian and Coral as counterparts of one another. Like, if Coral were a lander, she would be like Dorian and mm -hmm. vice versa. So because um, the common thing between the two of them is that their core nature is the same. Like in their own context, they prioritize loyalty and compassion. And and because their family lives have been absolutely ostracizing to them as people, they, they become friends over their shared hurts, like Dorian's dad and Coral's dad. So they basically find common ground in their nature more than like outer physical aspects of the world. So... Yeah, it, it's probably their fathers and their family lives that drew them together. So Coral likes Dorian, but despite herself, she's got yeah. one loyalty in the end. And who is yeah. that to? It's to herself every time. Like her family, of course, but uh, Coral has a very strong sense of self. And no matter what happens, she will always find herself at the center of her mind. She, she, she stands by herself. 
And there's something else too, something that she tells Dorian when they're talking. He's he's told her uh, that she's very angry, which she is, and her anger and combined desperation fuel her desire to win the race. But when they're talking, she says there's something else that she values more than gold. Yeah, I think... I think that would be her compassion and because Coral is most of all compassionate, like her social situation binds her uh, and, and she doesn't really get to exercise that a lot, but she always considers others from an objective point of view. Uh, like uh, there's this uh, there's this one woman, a renter woman, whose son has been abducted, taken away by the state and she she knows that talking to this woman, it's, it's not, it's not going to reflect well on her that, you know, some mm-hmm. lender, a security guard, or something might watch her, might, you know, keep an eye on her. But she doesn't really care about that in the moment. She objectively knows that she shouldn't, but she doesn't. So I think this is also a reason why she reached out to Dorian when they first meet, because she knows that it's probably not the best thing to do, but she takes on that, uh, you know, that idea that, you know, this guy, this little boy, he's crying, and I, I should probably reach out and make sure he's okay. She is compassionate, yeah. and she also, yeah. she feels like he's in prison, and uh, yeah. it's interesting that she says, because it kind of informs her choices towards the end, which we're not going to get into, because uh-huh. people can read the book, and then they can find out what she decides in the end, but freedom is very important to her. Yeah, yeah, her freedom, and um, yeah, but I think her freedom is so important, but it- Uh, Would it come at the cost of a compassion? That's probably a question that's, you know, running through the entire story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a central conflict. So uh, Dorian's cautioned Coral that her anger is leading her on a dangerous path. And do you feel like her anger evolves and changes during the course of the story and influences her character evolution? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I think this story is primarily about um, this one girl and her trauma, and that's why I chose to make it a close first-person narrative. It was it was easier to track Coral's anger this way, like from the start, Coral's general rage at the injustice um, given out to her and her family. Um, they live in every moment of her life this injustice, and there's no interaction which is without this underlying anger. Mm-hmm. And as we go through the story, we see Coral fighting in the glory race. We see her coming to terms with her anger and the many ways that the world keeps her angry. So, you know, she cannot move beyond it. By the end, um, there's a quiet relief from this anger. It still exists, but it's now part of a bigger tapestry that she understands is the world. And, yeah, it's it's definitely an evolving thing. It, it, it goes back to, you know, being compassionate and wanting freedom and that anger trying to hold her back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we have the title of the book. Uh, and so tell yeah. us who are the monsters born and who are the monsters made? Oh, wow. Um, I wish it was as simple to answer this as it is to, like, ask this question. But uh, there are so many ways this can go in this particular story. For uh, example, part of what makes a caste system, like any caste system or the fictional or the real world one, so daunting and a permanent fixture in a society is that it comes with birth. Like Raised within this system, it's easy for anyone to become the monster who perpetuates the evil of it. Mm-hmm. But then there's the evil that comes from um, being surrounded 
by this kind of a social setup, uh, living in it and not knowing what else to do. And um, not to mention the traditional definition of a monster as uh, uh, something non-human, something that preys on frail humans with violence. And then, of course, there's um, the philosophical question of uh, what exactly the word monster means. Like, who gets to use this word against another another living being and why? Mm -hmm. And I feel like in a story, um, as readers, we will all bring our own perspective. So uh, (laughs) I think this question is best left to personal interpretation rather than me telling you who the monster is. For me, the monsters born were the monsters in the yeah. sea, but the monsters made were the human monsters. And yeah. the monsters who were born in the sea aren't aren't yeah. always monstrous, depending on how they're treated, as as uh-huh. one will see in the story. Yeah. Well, what are you working on it's these days? complicated. Sorry. What are you working on these days? Uh, now I'm um, I'm actually working on book two right now. I'm I'm waiting for edits from my editor, mm-hmm. and it, it it goes into the deeper lore of what marriage tags are, and I'm super excited about it. Um, I'm just like waiting for it to come back the edits, and I'll just um, start working on them again. Do you have a release date for it yet in the title? Uh, not yet because it's like we're we're very early in the process, mm-hmm. but. Uh, yeah, we're just we're working on it, and I know the work on the cover has begun. That's I think that's all I could talk about right now. Super early right now. So, what's the best way to follow you? Find out the new cover reveal and uh, publication dates and things like that. Yeah, I, I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram, on, on Twitter, and TikTok with the same username everywhere. It's my it's my name, Tanvi Berva, and my website, TanviBerva.com, will always have all the updated information. And yeah. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Gabriel. This is so this is so amazing and interesting. I, I, I haven't had such a good conversation in a long time about this book. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network and Fantasy. I've been talking to Tanvi Berva about her WYA fantasy novel, Monsters Born and Made. Join me next month when Aden Polidoros and I talk about his new fantasy, set in an alternate world based on Russian and Slavic mythology. I'm your host, Gabrielle Martin. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author. Till next time.